0: Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. If you have seen seemingly any movie in the last few months, at least uh, where we live, you've probably seen at least one really tear-jerking trailer for the movie Dunkirk, which is being described as an epic action thriller. Uh, it's about the Dunkirk evacuation, also known as Operation Dynamo or the Miracle of Dunkirk, unless perhaps you live in France, in which your name for it is probably not so laudatory. Yeah, I have
0: seen that trailer several times in IMAX, uh-huh. and it seems so very stressful. <laughs> and the um the early reviews I have seen so far say, like, it starts stressful and stays stressful, that I'm like, I don't know what, I'm going to need some help to get <laughs> through this one somehow or another.
1: <laughs> well, and I uh I don't know about other, it's tuned to the key of making me cry. Yeah. Every time I have seen it in the theater, I have started tearing up. And I was worried about whether we would be able to keep our composure through an episode on it. But this took me so long to research. It took me, in fact, four times normal. So at this point, I feel like I've been inoculated. You have have Dunkirk desensitization. Dunkirk tears. (laughs) So this upcoming movie is at least the second major motion picture dedicated just to this story. It's appeared in fiction as well, including in Atonement. There is a British TV drama about it, many books, and this attention is really not surprising, on top of World War II being a hugely, hugely popular setting for both fiction and nonfiction. It also has lots of details that make for a really compelling and harrowing story, like a fleet of hundreds of little ships crossing the English Channel to rescue stranded soldiers. But the retellings usually focus on that dramatic rescue, with the Allied troops either already cut off or at the edge of disaster, That leaves a whole lot out, uh, including how the Allied forces got into such a predicament, which had a huge part of the British Expeditionary Force stranded and in serious danger and in one spot. Every time I would see the trailer, I would be like, but y'all, how did you get into this fix? (laughs) Yeah, how how did all these people end up on the beach? Yeah, yeah. so today we're going to talk about the lead-up to World War II and its relentless progression into France in May of 1940. And then the next time, we are going to look at this evacuation itself, including the sacrifices that had to be made to evacuate so many people. Uh, and a brief caveat that even at two episodes, there are tons of details we are not getting into. Two of the books that were part of the research for this, one of them was about 300 pages long, and the other one was about 700 pages long and a 700-page one included 21 maps at the end detailing all of the various troop movements and things that happened if maps like that are what you are really into uh you may find this too general <laughs> um but that's it would be just a an unending list of movements and town names and generals and names of units yeah I, I i would find that hard to follow while listening to you i imagine <laughs> others would also uh and we haven't really done a recap on
0: the beginnings of world war ii on our show and particularly for our u.s listeners when you learn about it this tends to be glossed over with more attention spent on the holocaust and on the united states involvement in the war so we're going to start there uh, historians mark numerous points after the end of World War I in 1918 as the start of World War Two, And really, the terms of the Treaty of Versailles that ended the war played their own part in setting the stage for another one. And when it comes to the war in Western Europe, and especially the part of the war that we're talking about today, most timelines put it at Germany's invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939.
1: But even that starting point really requires more explanation than just Germany invaded Poland. Germany had faced huge economic and military consequences under the Treaty of Versailles, some of which contributed to Adolf Hitler's rise to power. We talk about that rise to power in more detail in our episode on the Night of the Long Knives. But briefly, in addition to restricting the German military, the treaty distributed German and German-occupied land to other nations and required Germany to pay reparations. These reparations and Germany's handling of them aren't really easily summarized in just a sentence, but they contributed to hyperinflation of the nation's currency and other serious economic fallout. World
0: War I had also been devastating outside of Germany. Other nations involved had suffered enormous and sometimes catastrophic social, economic, and human costs. These costs were so high that much of the rest of the world was incredibly hesitant to embark on another massive war, even as the after effects of World War I and the Great Depression both contributed to the rise of fascism in multiple nations. In particular, Britain and France were the two nations both most likely and most able to resist Germany, but they were reluctant to do so. Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of Great Britain from 1937 to 1940, followed a policy of appeasement when it came to Britain's response to Nazi Germany.
1: In the mid 1930s, Germany took a number of actions that were supposed to be prohibited under the Treaty of Versailles and other international agreements. For example, the treaty had set strict limits on the German military and forbidden it to unite with Austria, but between 1935 and 1938, Germany annexed Austria and began rebuilding its military might, which other nations reluctantly allowed.
0: In the face of ongoing German aggression, Britain and France also made guarantees to other nations regarding their own security. One was Czechoslovakia, which was forced to cede some of its territory to Germany under the Munich Agreement in September of 1938. And as part of this agreement, Britain and France had guaranteed the integrity of the remaining Czechoslovakian territory. But when Germany invaded that territory in mid-March of 1939, Britain and France did not intervene. They did, however, make a similar guarantee of Poland's border later in the
1: month. So when Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, Hitler was making a gamble. Britain and France had given Poland their guarantee, but they hadn't stopped the German move into Czechoslovakia after making a similar guarantee. After so many years of appeasement, it seemed likely that a German invasion of Poland probably wouldn't provoke much of a response. Hitler thought that if it did start a war, he could probably win it quickly, with Britain being reluctant to take action and France not strong enough to win without the aid of the United Kingdom. Instead, though, both France and
0: the United Kingdom declared war on Germany on September 3rd, 1939. Britain began deploying the British Expeditionary Force the following day. The Air Force and the Navy were involved as well, but a lot of today's story is really focused on the army. By late September, more than 150,000 British troops had made their way to France, with reinforcements arriving in April of 1940.
1: Poland, however, was quickly overrun. Germany had secretly signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, which also invaded Poland on September 17th. Apart from the short-lived and ineffective Saar offensive in Western Germany, Poland couldn't get much actual backup from Britain or France, Warsaw surrendered on September 27th, with Poland's government fleeing to Romania. The Soviet Union and Germany then divided Poland between them.
0: From October 1939 to May 1940, in spite of their declarations of war, there just wasn't a lot of military confrontation on the ground between Nazi Germany and the United Kingdom and France. There were definitely other engagements that went on during this period. The Soviet Union, for example, invaded Finland in November of 1939 in what came to be known as the Winter War. But in terms of Britain, France, and Germany, things were relatively quiet.
1: Britain came to call this period the Phony War because of its overall lack of activity, while Germany called it Sitzkrieg, a sitting-still counterpart to Blitzkrieg, the famously intense style of lightning war that became synonymous with Germany's World War II strategy.
0: Britain, expecting to be attacked, prepared for it, distributing gas masks and implementing air raid precautions on the home front. The Allies blockaded the German coastline and Britain dropped pamphlets over Germany decrying the evil of the Nazi regime.
1: Britain and France also both built up their military strength in what was primarily a defensive measure and not an offensive one. Allied forces attempted to create an unbroken defense down the Maginot Line, which was a series of concrete forts, barriers, turrets, and other armaments that stretched the whole length of France's border with Germany. The Maginot Line was supposed to be impenetrable, and building up and manning its fortifications was a big focus during these months. However, when Blitzkrieg returned in May of 1940,
0: it didn't come to the Maginot line, and we'll get into that after a quick sponsor break.
1: Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news.
0: Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs)
1: Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's uh, not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah,
0: and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's Day. David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip.
1: You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuffy Mist Miss History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there, too. <laughs>
0: and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling, amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: At the start of World War II... France had what may have been the strongest army in Western Europe. I say may have been because there are lots of discussions about exactly how to define strength and who is the strongest by whatever measure is being discussed. But on the whole, many of the troops that Britain deployed to the continent in late 1939 and early 1940 to assist the French force were ill-equipped and poorly trained.
0: This was not the fault of the soldiers themselves. After the end of World War I, Britain had gradually disarmed itself. So once it needed to deploy troops to France, essentially everything was behind, from recruiting the soldiers themselves to staffing the factories that would be needed to clothe and arm them. Even the decision to commit defensive troops in continental Europe came fairly late. That was made in February of 1939.
1: Once Britain and Germany were at war with one another, the rapid speed of deployment also meant that many of the British forces weren't just lacking the finer points of their training, they were missing out on key parts of what they needed to know. A large number of Britain's anti-tank platoons, for example, had not been trained on how to use their anti-tank weapons before arriving in France. They had to figure it out for themselves from the manuals once they were already there.
0: And even though the recency of World War I meant that there were lots of men who had fought in it serving as officers in the British Expeditionary Force, a lot of their knowledge had just become obsolete in the face of changing military technology. And this idea comes up a lot more often in terms of World War I, when machine guns and other advances in weaponry outpaced pretty much everything else, leading to grueling years of trench warfare. But this was also a problem in the Second World War. Militaries had become far more mechanized and motorized, but many of the men in charge of the British and French forces had not yet adapted to putting those advances to use.
1: In other words, failure to adapt to the machine gun and other advances contributed to World War I's years-long stalemate. And failure to adapt to increasingly mobile armored tanks and other vehicles contributed to World War II's crushing defeat of France and other nations at the hands of Nazi Germany at the very beginning of World War II. Ideally, that
0: eight-month phony war would have been used to train, not just to supplement the training of the British troops who had been recruited and deployed so quickly, but also to train the British and French militaries to work together. And while there was some training and plenty of building defenses and fortifications, this time really just wasn't used very productively. For the entire period of World War II that we're talking about today, The relationship between the British and French forces was marked with miscommunications, missed opportunities, infighting, and an increasing sense of bitterness toward the other. Multiple sources also note that brothels, which were far more available in France than in Britain, led to an epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases within the British fighting force.
1: Germany, on the other hand, knew that there was no way it could win a drawn-out war, so it did not waste the quiet months of Sitzkrieg. Instead, it planned a coordinated and incredibly effective attack on multiple nations that played out essentially simultaneously.
0: Germany first invaded Denmark and Norway on May 9, 1940. Denmark's leadership knew that it didn't have the strength to resist German attack and surrendered almost immediately. In Norway, the situation was far more complicated, with the nation at first mustering a defense with British aid, and then finally being defeated in June after Britain removed most of its force to France.
1: On May 10th, the next day, the situation became far worse, with Germany invading Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Belgium, with the Luftwaffe also bombing some Allied locations in France, all on the same day.
0: Luxembourg had tried to remain neutral, and when Germany invaded, they offered little resistance. The nation's government fled, and Germany placed it under military administration.
1: In the Netherlands, Germany strategically deployed paratroopers to capture bridges deep within the nation and make way for a land invasion. Although the Dutch destroyed some of the bridges ahead of the German advance, it wasn't enough to completely stop them. And by the 12th of May, so just two days later, German tanks were closing in on Rotterdam. Wilhelmina, Queen of the Netherlands, fled with her government to England on May 13th, and on the 14th, the Dutch army surrendered to Germany.
0: Belgium had received intelligence of an incoming attack, but suffered from a bit of the boy-who-cried-wolf syndrome. In January, a German plane carrying secret documents detailing an invasion had crashed in Belgium, leading to preparations for an incoming attack. But the dates and the plans came and went without incident. An invasion had seemed imminent at other points as well, so by May 10th, some still thought it was yet another false alarm. German forces once again took forts and bridges, using airborne troops to make way for a ground assault.
1: It did not take long at all for German tanks to break through the Belgian front, and this led Belgian troops to fall back through central and northern Belgium and for the nation to look to France and Britain for aid. This actually became a point of frustration within the Allied nations, The Allied command had wanted to position a front through Belgium in the first place, which would have meant far more troops already there and possibly a much quicker defense against the German invasion. But like Luxembourg, Belgium had tried to remain neutral. It only allied with Britain and France after this May 10th invasion.
0: And all of this May 10th action took place on Winston Churchill's first day as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, following the resignation of Neville Chamberlain, whose policies of appeasing Nazi Germany clearly had not worked.
1: We noted before the break that the most heavily fortified part of France was the Maginot Line, which ran alongside the border it actually shared with Germany. When France had built the Maginot Line, it had been reluctant to similarly fortify its border with Belgium, since doing so would have made it look like France didn't see Belgium as trustworthy. So by invading Luxembourg, Belgium, and the Netherlands, Germany now had a means to get to a part of the French border that was, at least comparatively speaking, undefended. Germany had also, in this multi-pronged invasion, gained far more access to the English Channel and the North Sea.
0: And what followed became known as the Battle of France. And we are going to talk way more about it after we first pause for a sponsor break. There's a city far away. A fiction podcast. The richest, most powerful place on Earth. On an epic scale. Duman Bay. Bay. Duman Bay.
1: A vast empire threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. Power gives everything.
0: We have to get away from this place Or we will die too
1: The truth makes us strong Tuman Bay
0: is our destiny History and fantasy collide They are among us Who? First a few and now many From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker The only thing I ask of you Is total and complete loyalty now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tumen Bay. Be
1: sharp and die for Tumen
0: Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tumen Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Tumen Bay. I'm sure this is far from universal, but having grown up in the United States, most of the focus on World War II in history class started with Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor and the United States' entry into the war without much attention at all spent on 1940 and 1941. And a very popular perception in the United States is basically that the German army suddenly arrived on the outskirts of Paris and Paris immediately surrendered without a fight. While Germany's takeover of France was swift and devastating, I mean, I can't stress this enough, there were many, many mistakes made in the effort to drive Germany back. This was really a six-week ordeal in which Germany repeatedly overran any stand that France attempted to make, not just some spontaneous knock at the door to Paris followed by rolling over like a puppy yeah which
0: is often how france is characterized in the war and it's completely it's really wrong oversimplified and false Well,
1: i especially remember it coming up uh during the iraq war when people in the united states were angry that france didn't support the war in iraq and started making up things like freedom fries yeah uh and it's like it's (laughs) we're going to talk in more detail about how that's not how that went down (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, After Germany's invasion of Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, Britain and France, along with other Allied troops, began planning to push toward the river dial in central Belgium to repel the German force. And this push was, on the whole, successful. But it wasn't what needed to happen to actually resist Germany. The German presence in Belgium was a diversion, and Hitler was using it to draw the Allies' focus while Germany instead invaded France through the Ardennes on the River Meuse.
1: The Ardennes are a forested, hilly area, well to the southeast of where the Allies moved most of their best troops. Because it was such difficult terrain, it wasn't considered to be a very likely spot for an invasion, so consequently it wasn't particularly well defended. By placing a far more visible force in Belgium, Germany had set a trap, and England and France had fallen into it. This meant that when the
0: German force broke through the Ardennes, instead of facing the strongest elements of the British and French armies, it instead faced a smaller French force that had been left behind as a defense, along with some British air support, not the much stronger and generally better equipped force that had been moved toward the northwest into Belgium.
1: Germany had another advantage over Britain and France as well. At the start of the war, the Allies had more tanks in Western Europe than Germany did, but Germany had clustered its tanks into their famous panzer divisions, which combined both tanks and infantry. France had some armored divisions as well, but they weren't nearly as numerous as Germany's were. So where Germany had tanks, it generally had more of them than the Allies did which made a German tank assault incredibly hard to defeat.
0: These panzer divisions were also empowered to basically act on their own, pressing advantages where they saw them and pushing ahead of the rest of the German force. This was not an idea that the Allied military command was used to at all. It made the German force far more nimble than the Allies, who were still largely thinking of warfare as a series of huge assaults followed by pauses to regroup and strategize. These smaller panzer units acting on their own consequently caused huge disruption and confusion among the Allied commanders.
1: From May 15th to 17th, France tried but failed to muster a counteroffensive that could push back the German invasion. The French Ninth Army first planned to make a stand about 40 kilometers or 25 miles west of the Meuse River, but could not get enough troops in place in time to do it. They tried again farther to the west and once again couldn't get a large enough force in place to really stop the German advance. Both times, Germany just outpaced the Allies with the Panzer divisions pushing ahead of the planned defensive position before the Allies could even establish a foothold there. In some cases, there were even fortifications that had already been built, but there was no one there to man them. In terms of the French army,
0: compounding a lack of trained men where they were needed was a lack of leadership. On May 15th, Maurice Gamelin, the French military's commander-in-chief, received word that German troops were moving into a position that would allow them to take the capital of Paris. He didn't have nearly enough troops in the area to fend off such an attack, so he informed French Premier Paul Reynaud of the impending threat.
1: Reynaud immediately decided to relocate the capital, but soon new intelligence arrived that Paris wasn't in danger after all. So, Reynaud first announced that the move of the capital had just been a rumor, and then after that debacle, replaced Gamelin with General Maxime Weigand. Weigand was at that time stationed in Syria, and he wasn't able to get to Paris until May 19th. In that interim, the French military, which was in the middle of a war, basically had no commander-in-chief. Weygan himself had been part of the Allied command during World War I, and his strategic outlook was much more suited to that time than this newly mobile fighting force, including panzers that were acting on their own. So once he actually got there, the direction that he gave was often not really something that could be put into practical use.
0: During that three-day leaderless window, the German force continued to press north and west. They reached Amiens, which, very roughly speaking, is north of Paris, about halfway to the border with Belgium, and they did that on May 19th. The next day, they continued to push west to Abbeville, to the northwest of Amiens, which was about 20 kilometers or 12 miles from the coast, and advance units made it all the way to the English Channel.
1: With this push toward the coast, the German army had physically divided the Allied forces, cut through their supply lines and their communication lines, and started to surround them. Then the German army turned north, pressing toward and ultimately taking the port of Calais. Calais was not only the closest port to the island of Great Britain, but was also the port that the Allies logically would have been using to escape. So the situation at this point was desperate,
0: and it was about to get worse. And we are going to talk about that in the next episode.
1: Yeah, I looked at so many maps of France. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there are so, so many individual uh, towns and details and movements uh, you could go on for pages and pages and pages about. Yes. And
0: again, I think that's one of the reasons that we don't usually get the story of what led up to the whole Dunkirk yeah. moment. Yeah. Because it's too hard to unfurl all of the threads. Yeah.
1: I found lots of things that basically described it as uh, Germany invaded everywhere and then we had to evacuate. <laughs> Or Which is simplistically speaking, right. correct. Sure. Uh, or, you know, the 700 pages of details. Fine, fine details. <laughs> do you have a little
0: bit of listener mail?
1: I do. Uh, before I get into the listener mail, I have a quick correction about Catalina de Rauso. Uh At one point, I said that she was near La Plata, Argentina. Uh-huh. That should have been Bolivia. Ah, uh, that there are, uh, La Plata's in both of those places. One of them was established 200 years after Catalina died. And that was what I said she, in error. She was there ahead of her time. She's the <laughs>
0: original hipster.
1: <laughs> well, in her, uh, in her autobiography, she often names cities and towns without necessarily saying that she had crossed a border into somewhere. Right. Um, and so sometimes when I was trying to write the outline, I would try to track down, okay, which nation was she in at that point and that is a case where i got it wrong so apologies for that error uh and i have a listener mail my listener mail i uh, think this person's name is pronounced portia if that's not i apologize and portia writes dear holly and tracy Recently, I settled into a several-hours-long drive for work and made sure to have my go-to podcast downloaded for the drive. Much to my delight, the most recent episode for the podcast was about the Cuyahoga River. I both grew up along the banks of a river, North Cuyahoga, and am in the first year of having landed the job position of curator and special collections librarian in a library that specializes in the inland waterways of North America, meaning that my days revolve around caring for archival materials related to the subject— Researching subject, presenting to interested parties, and generally doing what I can to preserve and promote the history of America's rivers. I thought you handled the subject well and don't have any corrections and in fact was informative to even me as the fires have not yet required much of my research attention and were, as you stated, not phenomenally huge news in the world of people familiar with the rivers. I was away from the office for an extended work trip and made a mental note to look up what other episodes you have done on rivers. And when I got back that I might have forgotten about when I finally remembered to, I noticed that the most recent episode was again about the river or a river. This one about the SS Eastland on the Chicago River. It was then that I realized that the majority of episodes you've done about rivers are related to disasters, wrecks, and generally negative moments. I empathize. Steamboat wrecks certainly make a more captivating history than an uneventful cargo delivery, and I receive many more questions about them than most other aspects of riverboat life. If you've never heard of it, I recommend looking up the Arabia Steamboat Museum in Kansas City, a staple of my childhood having grown up on the Missouri River just outside Kansas City, an entire museum devoted to the recovered cargo of an 1846 wreck known as Tut's Tomb of the Missouri River. Often these wrecks and disasters are most predominantly color people's impressions of inland waterways, with perhaps the most notable exception of Lewis and Clark, In fact, the lives of rivermen and women have a rich history of economy, art, music, and their own distinct culture. For example, did you know that there used to be floating brothels, islands of river pirates, recipes that specifically called for river water, and steamboat races, the most famous of which in 1870 spanned almost four days and set a speed record that has yet to be beat. And in fact, there is still an annual Great Steamboat Race as part of the Kentucky Derby Festival. And these are truly just scraping the surface. I'm not sure where this is going. I think I just wanted to share a bit of my professional passion with someone, and this was a better opportunity than my beleaguered partner who patiently listens to me talk his ear off about my work nearly daily. I hope your listeners will be inspired by what they hear to look into River History and be as delighted as I am every day to learn more. Uh, And then Portia ends with an episode suggestion. So thank you so much for sending us this lovely note. I did not deliberately pick two episodes in a row that were about things that happened on rivers, but they were both a byproduct of working on this episode, (laughs) which as I said at the top turned out to be much harder than expected. And so on multiple consecutive weeks, I got to a point where I, I knew this could not be done in time to record it. And so I had to put it aside for something else. And it had to specifically be something else that had a straightforward enough narrative that I could do it in the remaining time that I had. So that is how we came to have two things on rivers in a row.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, the documentation is usually a little easier to find yep. on a river disaster
1: than on some of our more esoteric yeah. uh, topics. So. Well, and Dunkirk has too much documentation. That's part of the problem. <laughs> Uh, so, we will continue with the evacuation of Dunkirk next time. If you would like to write to us, we are at history Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. On all of our social media, we are under the name Missed in History. So, that's Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Instagram, all of those Missed in History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, to find all kinds of information about rivers and boats and big wars <laughs> Lots of that kind of thing. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com for show notes on all the episodes Holly and I have ever done, uh, an archive of every episode ever. That archive is highly searchable, uh, so you can look for things that may interest you from our back catalog. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.